Hello, everyone, and either welcome or welcome back to the Gender Libertarian Podcast. If you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page where you do get early access. Link will be down in the show notes. So in the middle of this very, very long, very full of stuff week, we did have a State of the Union address. So we have State of the Union 2020 has now come and gone. And I wanted to go ahead and do the roundup of it because this is what I do. I normally give these sorts of things their own episode. So I want to start off with saying that I was kind of surprised at the tone of this address. Um, Usually Trump does manage to stay on script when he does State of the Union addresses. It's one of the few times the man can actually like read a teleprompter and not go off on tangents and do weird shit. But I was kind of expecting, especially since this was on the literal eve of the last impeachment vote, um, the State of the Union address was on Tuesday and the last vote was on Wednesday. I was expecting something a little bit more batshit than what we got. I was expecting something a little more along the lines, honestly, of like Trump's inauguration speech, if you remember that, where at the end of that, famously, W said, that was some weird shit. I was expecting something along those lines, and this was actually fairly tame, I do think. I'm not going to say this was like the greatest speech he ever gave, because, I mean, that's that's such a low bar. <laughs> I mean, this is, that's, I mean, that that's hardly praise. But it was fairly restrained, way more restrained than what I was expecting. But an interesting thing that came of me sort of having to record this episode a day later than I originally planned, is that today the viewership numbers came out for the State of the Union address. And I was expecting this year's State of the Union address to draw a larger crowd than usual, if for nothing more than the fact that it was, like I said, on the eve of the last impeachment vote, which everybody pretty much knew going into the vote on Wednesday that he would be voted to be acquitted. So I expected people that wouldn't even normally care about a State of the Union address to tune in, if for nothing else, to see exactly what Trump would say or do in this particular situation. And he's not the first president to give a State of the Union address during an impeachment process. Um, Nixon did it and Clinton did it too. And Reagan also gave one after the Iran-Contra scandal broke out, which wasn't an impeachment situation, but was a fairly large controversy involving the president of the United States. So not without precedent, but obviously not the norm. And so, like I said, I expected more people to tune in just for kind of like the rubbernecking curiosity factor. And that did not happen. Actually, the opposite happened in a pretty substantial number. Um, Viewership numbers came in at 37.2 million people which was down from State of the Union 2019, which was at 46.8 million people. So for those doing the math at home, that's about 9.6 million drop in viewership numbers, which is pretty damn significant. That's a huge drop off. And I'm not quite sure what to make of that. But I wanted to bring it up because that is a very significant viewership drop. Like, and that was not what I was expecting at all. So I don't know if it's Trump fatigue. I don't know if it was people basically not watching it at a protest. Um, there were a couple of Congress critters. Um, AOC did not attend at a protest. 
Um, Ariana Presley did not attend out of protest. I'm not sure if anybody else did, but those two did specifically say that they were not attending the State of the Union address. So I don't know if this was something along those lines or if people just genuinely just weren't that damn interested. I don't know. I, I don't know what to make of those viewership numbers, but let's go ahead and get into some of the kind of like big topics that Trump discussed during this speech, which actually came in at a fairly decent time. It started at nine and ended a little after 10. So this wasn't, it wasn't horribly long. Like I was expecting this to go on till like 11 o'clock at night. And I was just like, oh my God, kill me. But thankfully it did wrap at a decent time. So thank God for that. So started out with the economy, obviously. And Let me go ahead and kind of preface this by saying that my expectations for State of the Union addresses are not particularly high. I mean, I understand what the point of a State of the Union address is, and that is to kind of be like a rah-rah, feel-good sort of, hey, the country is doing all right, and here's all the way it's doing all right, and yeah, things don't suck, woo! And especially given that this is Trump giving this speech and every speech he gives is a campaign speech. The man has not stopped campaigning since 2015. He's not left campaign mode. And this speech was no different. In a lot of ways, it's a campaign speech because obviously he's running this year. So yeah. So start off with the economy, which I will admit the economy has been doing pretty good. Inherited a fairly decent economy. Nothing too awful has happened to wreck it, Um, although tariffs did get glossed over a bit. I think they got mentioned in half of a sentence, and of course, none of the negative effects of the tariffs were mentioned, clearly, because that's not really the point of this speech. The point of the speech is to highlight all the good stuff, and the economy is fairly good. Unemployment numbers are good, especially for, as you pointed out, women and people of color. Uh, We are reaching record unemployment levels. And there's kind of something to be said there, too, once we get to immigration. But he he touted that, which every president does. Every president takes credit for a good economy. Whether that's a good idea to do or not, I would argue that. But every president does it, and Trump is no different. Um, Something he did say in this section was that in, in kind of an extended rant against Democrats in the Democratic field that he is running against, um, that America would never become a socialist country. And I would like to know Trump's definition of socialism because Trump is an economic nationalist, which I, I can't with economic nationalism. He is a big government guy. He is the kind of guy who favors government intervention into markets. This is a guy who, again, champions tariffs, which is a way of trying to centrally plan the government um, so what's your definition of socialism, my dude? Because you he embraces some pretty socialist sorts of ideas when it comes to government intervention into markets. And we'll, we'll discuss that again a little further once we get into kind of healthcare and stuff like that. But it was just funny to hear him make a point of saying that we're not going to become a socialist country and then go on throughout the rest of his speech to advocate various government programs to control the pricing of this or that, or to try to create jobs, or to basically have government sticking its fingers into the market to try to affect certain outcomes. 
just saying. Anyway, economy's good. Pointed it out. Got lots of applause. And if, if you've ever watched the State of the Union address, you know there's a lot of sitting and standing. And oh my, it's, uh, it wasn't that bad this year, though. It, I, I've definitely seen worse. But moving on, um, school choice did get a moment. Um, one or well, not one, but two of the guests that he brought, a mother and child, um, were there to highlight the opportunity, the opportunity scholarships, which are, as far as I could tell, meant to be able to fund kids to go to various other schools that they wouldn't be able to afford to go to otherwise, like going to private schools. And there was a moment where school choice was discussed, which, yes, school choice needs to be a broader discussion, especially when you look at people like Elizabeth Warren, who is very much against school choice, which is just, I don't I don't even understand that. Yes, parents should have the ability to have more say than they currently do into what schools their kids go to. Obviously, parents are in a better position to make these sorts of decisions because that's your kid. You know what their strengths are. You know what their weaknesses are. You can kind of funnel your kid into where they need to be. And so, yeah, I just thought that was interesting that that actually got some sort of speaking time and that there were actually guests invited there along those lines to highlight the idea of school choice. So moving on. Criminal justice reform obviously did get brought up. Um, last year, first step did get passed, and that was a huge deal. And it's one of the bright spots in the Trump administration that that act got passed. The implementation has been less than great, shall we say, but I will take the fact that it actually got passed as something of a bright light to kind of focus on and to kind of find find something of a bright spot in the Trump administration. There's not been a lot from the libertarian perspective, but that was one of them. But there was one thing that I did want to give a little bit of pushback on, and that is the idea that when you do these criminal justice reform acts, that obviously you, you free prisoners, you free inmates, but he also equated this as far as also getting jobs for inmates, which A, does not necessarily correlate with B. One of the biggest problems that former prisoners have reintegrating into society is getting jobs because you do have this record and so you don't pass a background check and so your options are rather limited. And I would like to see more of a discussion coming out of the White House as to how exactly to square that circle as far as making it easier for former inmates to integrate back into society, to get back to work, to get housing, to do all of the things that is very difficult to do when you have a criminal record and you can't pass a background check. I mean, it just, it just really limits your choices. And I, I would like to see more of a discussion about that. So moving on. A funny thing that Trump said was that he was a 2A supporter. Boy, stop. Shut the fuck up. Okay, first of all, Trump signed the bump stock ban. He EO'd that shit. So you, you miss me with your 2A. He's also been on record saying that you could just grab the guns and then figure the rest of it out later. Like, since when? Since when is this dude a 2A supporter? No, you're not. No, the, the, the record does not bear out that statement. And I thought it was funny. And of course, it was an applause line. And I'm just like, um, do y'all not know this dude? Because some of us have longer memories than other people, apparently. And some of us remember 
some of the shit that this said that this man has said and done. But I, I that was just one I was just like, oh, oh really? Okay, I see you. But the next topic that he moved on to is immigration, which there had been reports before the speech that the State of the Union address was going to feature somewhat heavily on the topic of immigration. It is Trump's signature issue, after all. And yeah, I will try not to go into an extended rant on immigration policy during the Trump administration. I will try to keep this to the things that are mentioned in the State of the Union address. I have done plenty of episodes on immigration if you would like to go back and listen to those. But here's here's the thing. I get very irritated when people want to demagogue immigration. And that is what Trump does. Uh, he takes information that is somewhat either incomplete, cherry-picked, or an out-and-out lie to try to make his own narrative about immigration. And it annoys the living shit out of me. So touting border numbers and touting the amount of people who have made it across the border. If you are going to bring up record low numbers, and he did briefly, briefly, briefly touch on the topic of MPP and the safe third country agreements that aren't technically safe third country agreements, but we'll keep calling that because it's just easier shorthand than trying to explain it. If you're not... And of course, I wouldn't expect Trump to spend a lot of time explaining this, but the reason why numbers are down is because essentially we are warehousing, depending on whose numbers you trust, because nobody has an exact number on how many people are currently being held in Mexico on MPP, anywhere from 55 to 60,000 people. And we have started to take asylum seekers and put them back on planes. And by the way, we're paying for this, by the way. This is at taxpayer expense. This is not, nobody else is paying for this. This is us paying for this. Putting them back on planes to Northern Triangle countries, to Guatemala, to El Salvador, and to Honduras, which by and large are the countries that these people are trying to get away from. And also you're sending them back to conditions that are not great on any level whatsoever, even if you just want to take it on the level that none of those three countries have anything that even remotely resembles a robust asylum system. Guatemala has eight people working in their asylum office for the whole country. And Honduras and El Salvador don't have many more because obviously nobody's applying for asylum in those countries because why would you? You're trying to get away from that shit. You're not trying to apply for asylum there. So these people are getting sent back to countries that just do not have the infrastructure to handle what is going to be an influx of people back into their country. And then, of course, Mexico having to deal with the Remain in Mexico MPP and try to somehow handle all of these people that the U.S. has basically at this point made it impossible for you to apply for asylum at the southern border. It's 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 basically impossible at this point. So now it basically we took our problem and kind of forced it over on Mexico and are now forcing it back down to the northern triangle. So touting border numbers without knowing that is really disingenuous. 
Like it's not, it's one of those where you can massage the numbers and you make it look good and you're like, oh, look, everything's so great. It's like, no, it's not really. You just, you didn't fix the problem. You just move the problem to someplace where Americans don't see it. And, And that's it. That's what you did. And he also touted border wall numbers as far as illegal crossings. And there was a little bit of sleight of hand on this one because saying that border crossings right now are at an all-time low, it really depends on where you want to start that metric. It seems that in Trump's speech, he started that metric at May of 2019, where there was a record high number of people crossing the border, and it has steadily dropped since then. But if you're going to go ahead and pick a number, and you start at like the highest number you can possibly start at, and then say that, well, this number is smaller than that number, it's like, well... You kind of cherry-picked your data a little bit there, buddy. So, there's that. And probably one of the most controversial things that happened, although I don't see a lot of people talking about it, although I do know this is incredibly, incredibly controversial in certain areas, is that one of the guests at the State of the Union address, and one of the ones who was specifically pointed out, was Juan Garrido, who, if you remember back... From when everybody was paying attention to Venezuela, um, he is the guy who was trying to oust Maduro. And there has been plenty of speculation about U.S. involvement with Guillermo and U.S. backing and whether that particular attempted coup was CIA backed, whether it was just U.S. backed in general. There's been a lot of controversy about that particular situation. So having him there at the State of the Union address that's, ooh, that was a statement. That was a statement. And going off of him being there, Trump went on to talk about how the U.S. is going to help Cubans and Venezuelans and Nicaraguans by basically getting involved in their countries. And I'm just like, oh, fuck no, dude, no. Do not, I repeat, do not get the U.S. involved in Central American countries, please, God, no. This, uh, half of the reason why, especially Nicaragua, but Venezuela too, to an extent, is the way it is, is because of U.S. involvement. Like, let's not break these countries any more than we already did. And if you want to help these people, the best way to help them is to let them immigrate to the United States. Let them seek asylum. Let them seek refugee status. I mean, especially Cubans and Venezuelans who once upon a time, and I'm not that old and I can remember this time, people that were fleeing socialist countries were automatically considered political refugees. Like they automatically went into the refugee system. But our refugee system right now for fiscal year 2020 is capped at 18,000 people for the whole damn world. So good fucking luck trying to get into that system. And like I said, asylum at the southern border is basically non-existent at this point, which is really the only way that if you are a Cuban or a Venezuelan or a Nicaraguan, that you're even like getting to get to somewhere where you can apply for asylum because in order to apply for asylum in the United States, you have to be on U.S. soil. No, you cannot do it at a consulate. No, you cannot do it at an embassy. No, you cannot do it from another country. You have to physically be here, which for that group of people, means coming up through Mexico. And for what it's worth, 
there are a lot of Cubans and Venezuelans that are currently stuck in Mexico in MPP who, I mean, they're, they're stuck there. They're stuck there the same way as everybody else from the Northern Triangle and from Mexico is stuck there. So it's just, it's a really complicated situation and you have people stuck where they shouldn't be, honestly, because like I said, I, I don't understand why Cubans and Venezuelans are not considered political refugees. They're fleeing socialist countries. I mean, it's just, it's, just let these people in, man. If you really want to help these people, let them get the hell out of their horrible countries. And that way, like, that that's helping. That's helping. Don't, don't get involved in these people's countries. Do not get involved in their politics. Do not try to orchestrate coups or regime changes or anything along those lines. It's only going to make things worse. And when he said that, I was just like, oh my God, please, God, no. Anyway, moving on, because we're not quite done with immigration yet. Because like I said, this was a big part of the speech as, as advertised. Um, he went into a spiel about catch and release and about how under the old system of catch and release, you have all these people and they caught them and they released them and then they just disappeared into the yonder. And that's not actually what happened under catch and release. And this is one of those, and I, I think back to my conversation with Alex Narasta on how exactly you counteract these sorts of narratives. And the only way you can do it, or at least attempt to do it, is point out that the facts don't bear out that argument. And this idea that under catch and release, you just had people just disappearing and not showing up for their court dates and just doing what the fuck ever is not true. 90% of those who were not in detention under catch and release, who were caught and released, showed up for their court dates. I mean, it's it's just the, the idea that people just disappeared is not true. There is no, no numbers, no study, no anything that backs up that assertion, but people keep making it. And it's just factually not true. 90% of people showed up. 90% of people wanted to do it legally. We're trying to do it legally. Catch and release was not a failure. And in fact, once you look at what we have now, I mean, it, it certainly was a hell of a lot more economical. It certainly was a lot more humane. And it didn't create the problems that everybody seems to think it did. And not to say that there wasn't plenty of other things to criticize under Obama's immigration policy, but catch and release was not one of them. And then... We finish up because, of course, we cannot do fear-mongering about immigration without bringing up sanctuary cities and how sanctuary cities are just the most awful, horrible, no-good things on the face of the planet. And again, this is one of those where the numbers and the studies just do not bear out these sorts of accusations. Sanctuary cities are not hotbeds for crime. In fact, every study ever conducted on sanctuary cities and crime shows that it's either flat, as in it's basically the same amount of crime as any other city, or that it's actually lower than your average crime rate compared to other cities. Because obviously, when you think about it, if you're here illegally, you don't really want to do things that are going to attract the law around you too much. You, you really want to stay under the radar. So it bears reasoning that Obviously, if you are undocumented, your your status is not exactly the firmest it can possibly be. You really go out of your way to stay the hell away from law enforcement because you know what's going to happen if you get caught doing something. So 
This idea that sanctuary cities are just these these hotbeds of crime is just not true. It's just literally not true. And of course, every time somebody wants to do one of these sorts of speeches, you cherry pick like, oh, well, there was this bad guy and that bad guy and this. I'm like, okay, so you found like three bad people out of what, hundreds of thousands of people? Like I can do that for pretty much any group of people. But if I said out of, let's say, 10,000 black people, there were three horrible, violent black people. And I use that to kind of besmirch every black person. There's a name for that. And there's a name for that if you do it with brown people. There's a name if you do that with Asian people. There's a name if you do that for white people. It's called racism. That's what racism is. So, yeah, it's just, it, it, it irritates me when I see people make arguments about immigration that it's just, it's not true. It's just literally not true. But people believe it because people want to believe it. Anyway, oh, no, 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 I'm not done with immigration because there was one last point that he brought up that I just, I was like, what the fuck? He said that we are working on immigration legislation. No, we're not. Congress is not working on immigration reform. I am not holding my breath for Congress to work on immigration reform at any point in the near future, even though it desperately needs to be done, especially in relationship to DACA, because in June, we are going to get the final Supreme Court decision on the constitutionality of DACA, and it looks like there is a good chance that the Supreme Court will rule it unconstitutional and therefore overturn DACA, and then I don't know what the fuck is going to happen. But there's just, there's no, there's no pending legislation related to immigration. I wish there was. I, I mean, I wish Congress would do their job here, but it's, that's not happening. That's another thing that's just not true. But I mean, <laughs> I saw, I heard that and I was just like, oh my dear God, no. All right, moving on to healthcare. If I never have to talk about healthcare ever again, it will be too soon because between between covering the democratic debates and this i just i swear to god whenever i hear healthcare my my ears just turn off because i'm done i'm so 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 done with this topic but this is the life i've chosen and this is what i've chosen to cover so here we are healthcare the topic i hate the most um trump put out there that we, and by I say we, I mean the U.S. government, will be protecting those with pre-existing conditions from being booted off of their health care. Here's the question. How? Um, quite famously, Republicans did not, at any point during their time of complaining about Obamacare, ever come up with a plan to replace it. And they've managed to get certain parts of the ACA repealed, but there are no, no plans out there that would replace what has been repealed. So exactly how we will be protecting people with pre-existing conditions? I don't know. There's, there's no policy on the table that backs that up. And moving on to the other thing that there is no policy on the table to back up is this assertion that Trump keeps making that we're going to lower the prescription drug prices, which 
he did sign an EO to that effect. And there is a plan that allows for Americans to buy their prescriptions from Canadian suppliers. But again, that's not... That, that's not really a policy. And for what it's worth, Canada is not exactly thrilled with this policy. They're basically like, what the fuck? Why, um, why do we have to take care of your patients? But then again, you know, farming our problems out to our neighbors seems to be the jam of this administration. So there's that. But again, there's just, there's no actual policy in place to make these things happen. And going back to the discussion earlier about socialism, um... That would be, I mean, the only thing I can think, and it seems to me that it wasn't explicitly said, but kind of implicitly said, would be that the government would get involved with dictating the pricing of prescription drugs, which that sounds an awful lot like price fixing to me, which is kind of a part of a centrally planned economy, which is a part of socialism. So again, when you say we're not going to become a socialist country, I really need to know what your definition of socialism is because you sure like a lot of plans that involve the government dictating the pricing of things. That's not how not socialism works. That's not how capitalism works. Oh my God. I just, oof. You know, not that I've not pointed this out before, but there are some striking similarities between Trump and Bernie as far as economic policy. And I mean, I just, I don't really see how you get around not pointing that out. But yeah, they're there. And like I said, I, I really question if you support these sorts of ideas and these sorts of plans, and even going back to stuff like tariffs and economic nationalism and the government sticking its finger in markets, then how exactly do you say that you don't like socialism? Like what part, what, what? What? What is your definition then? Because this crawls pretty damn close to it. Oh, and, and another point that came up, I, I think it was during the economics section, but Trump point blank said that he would protect Social Security and Medicare, not reform it, not look at how this could be funded, not anything, just protect it. Which again... <laughs> I need to know what you guys' definition of socialism is because, um, yeah, at this point, both Social Security and Medicare are basically robbing young people to fund old people. I mean, that's that's how the system is working now at this point, And there's a lot of factors that go into this, but everybody on Social Security and Medicare at this point is going to withdraw a hell of a lot more than they ever put in. And that's something that kind of needs to be addressed sometime in the near future. Guys, somebody. But no, he's just going to protect them. I'm like, oh my God. Ugh. Ugh. When is anybody going to care about economic policy again? When is any gonna be, anybody going to be for small government again? Is it never? Don't tell me it's never. But... The last thing that was addressed in the healthcare section is the opioid crisis, which is another one of Trump's favorite kind of rhetorical stomping grounds is we got to get the opioid crisis under control and we're going to eradicate it. But again, there's no actual policy on the table 
that comes anywhere close to addressing the opioid crisis. Now, to me, being the libertarian I am and being the somewhat logical person I am, my solution to the opioid crisis would be to stop the war on drugs, legalize drugs, start regulating them, and then you 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 start to get away from this situation where people are unwittingly getting either higher doses than what they think they're getting, they're getting fentanyl, and then you you have these problems with people overdosing. Like, okay, if you want people to stop overdosing, then stop enabling the situation in where they have to purchase their drugs in such a fashion that this becomes a problem. You know, like it, it kind of seems logical. But of course, that's not on the table because I, I don't know why. I, I don't know why some things are just not so glaringly obvious to people. And I mean, a lot of people still have a lot invested in the war on drugs and keeping it going. And God knows the government has plenty of money invested in this. And obviously, there's a whole there's a whole section of law enforcement. There's the DEA that re- completely relies on the drug war to exist. And also, I mean, state governments, local governments, they get a lot of money for kind of being sort of anti-drug and and doing these anti-drug initiatives. They get a lot of federal money for this. So obviously, there's a lot of incentives for people to keep the cash cows going. But I mean, at some point, like, you've got to stop. Like, this has got to stop. If for nothing else than on just a purely logical If you want to really address these sorts of crises, you have to start looking at the root cause. And the root cause is the illegality of the drugs in question. Like, that's it. And obviously making them illegal has not stopped this from happening. So, like, come on. Let's let's, let's start thinking about this logically. But moving on to kind of the last big section of the address. And this is the one that, honestly, maybe even more so than the immigration section, I have the most problems with. I mean, they're they're definitely neck and neck. And that was the discussion of the military. Um, Started out this section of the speech uh, touting military spending and how much more money we have now dumped into the military industrial complex and all of the fun, shiny things that we've bought with that. Clearly, I don't have to under I, I don't really have to explain to you guys why this bothers me. But yeah, just bragging about how much money we're spending on war toys is just it's a little morally repulsive to listen to somebody do that. It's just like that's not that's the opposite of what we need to be doing. We don't need to be dumping more money into the military. We need to be cutting back drastically. And also Space Force. Speaking of spending more money on the military, um, spent some time talking about Space Force. And <laughs> I shit you not, the man said this. The man made the argument for manifest destiny for the moon and Mars. He said that, that the U.S. has a manifest destiny to go to the moon and go to Mars. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> Oh my God! Why? Why? Why are we doing this? Why? Why Space Force? Why are we? I I don't. I still don't understand the purpose. I don't. I don't get it. I don't get it. But here's the part about 
this section that really bothered me while watching it. And the more I think about it, the more it bothers me. And let me go ahead and preface this. I am not a fan of using, for lack of a better term, human props at the State of the Union address. I mean, there are some people who are there and are there for rightful reasons. Like we we had the the last of the Tuskegee Airmen there and he got a promotion. Um, I also think back to, I believe it was the last State of the Union. Um, they had the guy from North Korea who did manage to escape from North Korea, lost both of his legs. Like people like that. Okay, I can understand that. Like they're, they're there to make a specific point. What I have a problem with are people that are invited to this in sort of a torture porn sort of way. And there was one during the immigration argument that the, I believe it was the brother of a guy who was killed by an undocumented. He was there and it just, it bothers me because when you see these people, I mean, they're visibly upset and they're there for that effect. They're there for you to see their pain. And I just, I, I find that really exploitative and really just repulsive. And it's just trading on people's pain like that in order to make a political point. I just, I, it just, I, I can't like, I, I just find that so disgusting and so gross. And this dude was so clearly upset. And, and there's always a couple of people every time they do a state of the union like this and they're there for emotional effect. And I just, I don't, I don't like it. I just, I don't, I don't, like using other people's pain in that way. Like, I just, I don't, I find it very exploitative, like I said. But there were two families that were invited there during, for the the military part of the speech. The first one being a mother and her 13-year-old son. And the story associated with them was that the son basically never knew his father because his father died while fighting in the Middle East. Um supposedly from he was blown up with an IED that was placed by Soleimani or by Quid's force. And so his story's there. And this was also in kind of bringing up Soleimani during this, the speech and yay, we killed the bad guy. All right. I've, I've made my, my thoughts on that pretty clear, but you have this mother here and this child and this is a child. I mean, and these people are in pain. And like, this is a child that doesn't know his fucking father because his father was off fighting in the Middle East for what exactly? And then the other family that they had there and I've seen reports online. I don't know if this is true, but I have seen it reported online that this mother and her child were not aware that this was going to happen, which if that is true, that's I. Oh, my God, no. But there was a family reunion and the the father was brought there and then they did the whole family reunion thing. And obviously that's, that's a whole thing. And I mean, if she didn't know, oh, that's, that's such a fucking horrible thing to do to somebody to put them on the spot like that and to, to, to do it, to do it specifically for the cameras. I mean, even if she did know just that, I just, I, I, I can't. Like, I just exploiting, uh, no. Mm -mm. But the broader point that I wanted to make, 
in relationship to those two families and that whole section of the speech in general is at no point during the State of the Union address was there any mention whatsoever of a troop withdrawal or, I mean, the, the fact that we moved troops around in Syria wasn't even mentioned. Just nothing about getting out of Afghanistan, getting out of the Middle East in general, scaling back the military, getting out of these foreign entanglements, nothing whatsoever. And I'm just like, if those two stories right there do not make it crystal fucking clear to you why this has to stop, I, I don't I don't get you. Like, I don't understand. It, that would have been like such a good time to announce a troop withdrawal. And if you were going to bring these people here and exploit their pain, at least do that. You know, at least say, okay, you see these people? I'm going to make sure that nobody else has to go through this pain again. But that's not what happened. And that just, I that bothered me. That really, really fucking bothered me. It still bothers me. Like, I just, I don't, I don't. Like, how, how are you going to show people in pain and then just... And then just brag that you spent more money on the military. It's just, whoo, the cognitive dissonance just burns on that one. And that just, I, you know, a lot of people sucked it up and voted for Trump because they believed that he meant it when he said that he's going to get us out of Afghanistan. He's going to get us out of the Middle East. He's going to, he's going to stop these foreign wars. And it hasn't happened. And quite frankly, after listening to that section of the speech, I don't expect it to happen anytime soon. And that really fucking sucks. Because like I said, a lot of people sucked it up. Not me. Damn sure not me. Because I don't believe any politician when they say any of that shit. But a lot of people did. And that that whole section was just kind of a slap in the face, to be honest. And that just... Mm -mm. Anyway... Moving on, <laughs> um, another thing that took place as far as kind of slap in the faces sort of things, um, Rush Limbaugh was given a Presidential Medal of Freedom. Yeah, that happened. And clearly staged event, um, whether Rush knew or not, whatever. Um, he was sitting next to Melania and Melania had the medal on her and she put it on him and that, 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 that. Okay, the reason that Trump did this ostensibly per him was because of Russia's charity work, which, okay. And for what it's worth, in case you didn't know, um, Rush Limbaugh was just diagnosed with advanced stage lung disease or lung cancer, excuse me. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. This just had kind of that kind of trolling the libs feel to it, honestly, because I mean, I I don't, obviously I don't agree with much of anything that Rush Limbaugh says ever, but I do respect what he's done for the genre. I do respect the fact that if it wasn't for him, there wouldn't be right-wing talk radio, which means there wouldn't be left-wing talk radio, which means there probably wouldn't be political podcasting, which means I wouldn't be sitting behind this mic. So I can respect what he did for the genre but it, uh, a presidential medal of freedom? No. No, you just did that to piss people off, dude. Like, I see what you did. And I'm just like, this is just so fucking ridiculous. Like, oh my God. So anyway, 
we get to the end of the speech. And this is where apparently the biggest controversy of the night happened. So Trump ends his speech and at the end, while he's standing there getting his applause, um, Nancy Pelosi sitting behind him because obviously Mike Pence and Nancy Pelosi are sitting behind him as vice president and speaker of the house. And she decides to rip up her copy of the speech, which going ahead and kind of rewinding back to the beginning of the speech, um, this all seems to have started. <laughs> this is so ridiculous. Like I, I can't, but at the beginning of the speech, the president gives the vice president and the speaker of the house like commemorative copies, like written copies of the speech he's about to give. And so they're in these nice fancy envelopes and the president gives them to you. And at that time, when Trump was giving Pelosi her her copy of the speech, she she stuck her hand out like to shake his hand and he ignored her. He says, or at least the White House is maintaining that he didn't see her stick her hand out for the handshake. I call bullshit on that because literally everybody else did. And so he basically just left her hanging and everybody took that as like a sign of disrespect, which I mean, clearly it's Trump. I mean, I could totally see him being like, I'm not shaking your hand because that, I mean, I'm not expecting a lot of decorum out of that dude. So at the end of the speech, she very dramatically rips up her copy of the speech and everybody loses their shit. What's funny about the people losing their shit is that they seem to forget the first half of that story, which is the part where Trump didn't shake Nancy's hand. And overall, I mean, it's stupid. Like, who? I mean, so what? She ripped up the fucking speech. I mean, good, good. I wish the legislative branch would be more openly pissy towards the executive branch. Personally, if she wanted to take that speech and rip it up into little pieces and chew it up and spit spitballs at the back of his head while he was giving the speech, I'd be cool with that. Fine. Go for it. Trump supporters crying about the lack of civility and decorum? Like, vicious, this is the world y'all created. <laughs> like, you're mad she ripped up a speech? Like, are you kidding me? And of course they're not mad, really. I mean, it's just performative angry because, oh my god, she, she, she ripped up the speech and it's just, it's such a breach of etiquette so mean. It's like, shut up. Oh my God. Anyway, she ripped up a speech. He didn't shake her hand. Nobody gives a shit, really. Nobody's going to be talking about this next week. I mean, nobody's even going to be making memes about it next week, but it's just funny to watch the whole pearl clutching of like, <gasps> it's like, no, stop, stop. We, we've completely galloped past that point. <laughs> oh, but anyway, that wraps up the speech. Yeah. Like I said, it was Definitely not as crazy as I was expecting it to be, but obviously it does have its issues, but that's to be expected, clearly. And I mean, it it is. It exists. There we go. It is now out there in the world. And yeah, I mean, I just, I'm, I'm kind of like meh about the speech. I mean, he did fine. He didn't go off on any tangents. I mean, that's... <laughs> That's about the best you can expect for him is that he followed the words on the teleprompter. Like that's, that's, that's a big deal for Trump. He said the words he was supposed to say. The bar is so low. But anyway, he managed to not make a complete ass of himself. And also 
impeachment was not brought up at all, which again was announced ahead of time that impeachment would not be discussed in the State of the Union address. He would be giving a separate speech after the final acquittal vote. And optically speaking, that's probably a good idea. Like, to have that discussion the day before the final vote, I think would have been really bad optics. So yeah, probably a very good decision to not have that discussion. And he also did not bring up the debacle going on currently in Iowa. I don't, I don't think they've actually announced a winner yet of the Iowa caucus. And it is Thursday the 6th. And that was Monday. So more on that on the weekly roundup because that is still ongoing. Like I I don't <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what to say about that situation. It's such a cluster. But anyway, he managed to not bring that up either. So the fact that he managed to not bring up impeachment or Iowa is something of a win for Trump. That like you managed to to restrain yourself for like an hour and a half of your life to not be a complete jackass. So anyway, at that point, that pretty much wraps up the speech. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. If you did make it this far, thank you for listening as always. And if you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. Take care and until next time.